Welcome to Dr. Waffle and Friends, a podcast where we share personal writing and then chat about it together. And now, here's Deanna with the reading. The opening of Anna Karenina is justifiably one of the most famous in literary history. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. But I want to put in a plug for the opening of War and Peace, which begins with a party. It's a clever device for introducing a lot of characters at once and orienting the reader to the new world she is going to inhabit for the next, God help her, 1,300 pages. In this case, we immediately meet our hostess, the well-known Anna Pavlovna Schirer, maid of honor and favorite of the Empress, and a few other key personages, including the central characters Prince André and Pierre. More importantly, Tolstoy introduces the methodology of the novel, a cross-hatching between sections devoted to war and others depicting the domestic concerns of those back home. What says peace more than a party? Yet a good party is also a little combative, a little like a battlefield campaign, and Anna's is no exception. A consummate hostess, she attends assiduously to her duties and monitors the conversation and comfort of her guests. As the foreman of a spinning mill, when he has set the hands to work, goes round and notices here a spindle that has stopped, or there one that creaks or makes more noise than it should, and hastens to check the machine or set it in proper motion, so Anna Pavlovna moved about her drawing room, approaching now a silent, now a too noisy group, and by a word or slight rearrangement, kept the conversational machine in steady, proper, and regular motion. Tolstoy not only demonstrates that great hostesses are kind of like great managers and great generals, but is also sensitive to the unvarying rhythms of a large party. The opening chapters of the novel begin, Anna Pavlovna's drawing room was gradually filling, Anna Pavlovna's reception was in full swing, and, having thanked Anna Pavlovna for her charmante soirée, the guests began to take their leave. Germination, burgeoning, decay, death, a life cycle in miniature. And as with any successful party, and any successful novel opening, repercussions from this gathering continue to reverberate for days, weeks, and chapters to come. Virginia Woolf takes the opposite approach in Mrs. Dalloway. The party that closes that novel reverberates backward in narrative time to affect everything that comes before. The novel takes place over the course of a single day, which Clarissa Dalloway devotes to preparing for her gathering. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that her obsessing over the arrangements is the beating heart of the narrative. Clarissa's approach to party throwing is the exact opposite of Anna Pavlovna's. She frets, she overthinks, she's convinced it will be a failure. She disappears into the other room for so long that her guests wonder where she's gone. Oh dear, it was going to be a failure, a complete failure. Clarissa felt it in her bones. Ask a 20-year-old emo undergraduate what Mrs. Dalloway is about, and he'll likely say the tragic suicide of the shell-shocked World War I veteran Septimus Warren Smith. Ask a neurotic, middle-aged literature professor, and she'll say it's about worrying that your guests won't get along. To say that I lean toward the Clarissa Dalloway side of the hostessing spectrum would be like saying that Vlad the Impaler was a little moody. Scott and I have been married for 22 years, 
which means that together we have thrown 8,764 parties. A love of entertaining was clearly one of the first things that drew us together as a couple. Your standard premarital counseling program does not include philosophy of parties as one of its central categories, but I think it should. Scott's and my mutual love of party throwing has balanced out other areas of serious incompatibility in our relationship, like philosophy of drawer closing and philosophy of who should drive. But while we share a love of hosting, and are also very much on the same page when it comes to other people's parties, always say yes, always go, always split apart at the door and circulate separately, we have very different temperaments with regard to planning and preparing. Because I am a fundamentally anxious person whose core self has been cobbled together through years of therapy, I am pretty fucked up about party throwing. It's almost like a compulsion. I can't not do it, which means that the pandemic really threw me for a loop, but at the same time, I am incapable of being relaxed about it. Just like Clarissa Dalloway, I tend to agonize over everything. Should we have a party? When should we have the party? What kind of party will the party be? Whom shall we invite to the party, i.e. jumbo, medium, intimate? Will people come to the party? Each of these questions, all of which are easily answered with calm-centeredness by less apprehensive people, such as my spouse, contains a rich trove of sub-questions worthy of intense anxiety in their own right. For example, will people come to the party contains, like a neurotic matryoshka doll, the nested worries when will people come to the party, and when will people leave the party? One of the last soirees I threw on my own, shortly before meeting Scott, was a medium-jumbo grad school rager. More drugs than booze, everyone left with someone they just met, the neighbors called the cops. And the only thing I really remember about it was that the doorbell rang at precisely 8 o'clock on the dot, the party's official starting time. In other words, I wasn't expecting anyone till 9.45. It was my friend Pete, clutching a bottle of bourbon in a paper bag. I hate waiting for the first guest to arrive and worrying that no one is coming, he explained. I figured you're probably the same. I fell weeping on his breast in gratitude. Peter, Peter, cried Clarissa, following him out onto the landing. My party tonight! Remember my party tonight, she cried, having to raise her voice against the roar of the open air, and, overwhelmed by the traffic and the sound of all the clocks striking, her voice crying, "'Remember my party tonight!' sounded frail and thin and very far away as Peter Walsh shut the door. The flip side of the "'It's thirty minutes past the start time and no one is here yet, oh my God, no one is coming, I have no friends' anxiety is the "'How long can I get people to stay?' conundrum. The official rule is that with each passing decade of life, your guests will shave 1.5 hours off their party departure time, so once you're all in your 40s and 50s, it's a struggle to get people to stay past 11 p.m. Unless you keep moving the start time earlier and earlier, by the time everyone's ready for a nursing home, your get-togethers will be only 15 to 20 seconds long. Another problem with middle-aged parties is that everyone tends to leave en masse, as if they had all simultaneously heard a loud, sonorous bell signaling the official end of the festivities. Suddenly there's a pause in the conversation, Everyone cocks their heads slightly toward the east. One guest checks his watch and notices that it's 10.58. Welp, someone will say, I'd better get going. And the next thing you know, there's a line of guests 30 deep waiting to pluck their coats off the bed. You don't all have to go, you may plead, slightly desperately. There's plenty of food left. 
We have cards against humanity, but it will be of no use. Like a call to daily prayer, the to bed, to bed, your life is passing by bell cannot be ignored. The leaden circles dissolve in the air. If you're lucky, your core besties will not only come to the party early, but they'll also hang around after the coat-plucking brigade to help you ease you back into normal life. The after-party, as my friend Trish has dubbed it. When you're younger, the after-party will consist of more booze and or drugs and a second wind. When you're older, it's when everyone hydrates. But either way, the key elements are the same. Assessment of the success of the party. Gossip about what happened at the party. Brainstorming for the next party. Cleaning up is strictly taboo. That's what you do the next morning, alone, in your robe. If everything goes exactly right, there will be an impromptu dance session to YouTube videos. But this is a precious and rare event that you should never expect to happen. It's impossible to force it. When it comes to the after-party, as with life, it's best to practice the philosophy of the open hand. Virginia Woolf wisely ends Mrs. Dalloway in the middle of Clarissa's soiree, just as she has recovered from her period of anxious withdrawal to rejoin her guests. We never learn whether anyone stays late to stretch out on the carpet and dish about how Sally Seton has really lost her looks. It's difficult to explain to people like my spouse, the Anna Pavlovnas of the world, why I insist on throwing parties even though it brings me such anxiety. I suppose the short answer is that it also brings me intense joy. First of all, I love parties, and so having one is a guarantee of getting to attend one. Second of all, I love making people happy, and I particularly love feeling responsible for and getting credit for that happiness. Canapes, a punch bowl full of whiskey sours, and a 90s dance mix seem like a pretty easy way to help ease our fellow travelers' way through this veil of tears. That said, party throwing is also my way of periodically checking in with my development as a Buddhist and realizing that I still suck. I am now Clarissa Dalloway's age, and I continue to agonize over whether anyone will come, obsess over the food, and worry that different groups won't mix well. But at least I know what my work is. I can see clearly all the ways in which I need to let go. I know that the party should be a pure gift given freely. It should not be about the giver. Occasionally I manage that high-wire act for just a few moments, and then I get a glimpse of freedom. The curtain with its flight of birds of paradise blew out again, and Clarissa saw. She saw Ralph Lyon beat it back and go on talking. So it wasn't a failure after all. It was going to be all right now, her party. It had begun. It had started. But it was still touch and go. She must stand there for the present. Thank you so much for sharing that marvelous essay. That was great. I so enjoyed it. Thanks, Tanya. That's one of my favorite ones. Well, can you talk a little bit about what was the impetus for writing it? And also if there was anything that made you particularly want to share that one on this episode? I started thinking about this question of party throwing and my own messed up attitude toward it. Uh, By the way, there's so much more. The neuroses run so much deeper. I've merely scratched the surface because then I have like neuroses about reciprocating and the rhythm of reciprocity. I mean, it's just, it's just endless. But anyway, 
the thing I don't understand is why you think that that's particular to you. I can resonate <laughs> with like everything you said. Oh, sure. No, I don't think it's particular to me. Oh, no, not at all. I've talked to lots and lots of friends. I'm just like thinking about the differences mostly between me and Scott. And like I said, there's like kind of two groups of people in the world, right? I think there's people who are Anna Pavlovna's and people who are Clarissa Dalloway's. Hmm. Sure, there are tons of Clarissa Dalloway's. I'm just fascinated by why. Like, and actually, not so much why. I get why. I'm I'm much more neurotic than Scott, or in different ways. I'm neurotic in, about different things. It makes sense to me. It's more like, why do I continue to insist on throwing parties if there's such a source of anxiety? That's the part that seems a little weird to me. Because I have a lot of friends who find party throwing hard, and they just decide not to do it. I also have friends who are like me, who are like, no, it's hard, but I still do it anyway. So why are we, what are we drawn to about it? Like, what is it about party throwing that's simultaneously really difficult and anxiety provoking, but also like a compulsion. And it really feels like a compulsion to me. Like if I haven't entertained in like two or three weeks, I start to feel antsy and weird. And I start like, when can I, you know, and I don't mean like a big party. We throw like two or three or four big parties a year. I know that's a lot, but, (laughs) but I mean, you know, I lived closer to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, those are like kind of anchors of the party year or whatever. And then like, I don't know, like every week I have friends over to watch a particular TV show like Drag Race or, you know, whatever. Maybe every two or three weeks I have a smaller gathering, like a few people over for a drink. And then maybe like once or twice a week, a friend comes over for dinner. You know, so it's like just fairly constant entertaining at different levels, right? So yeah, I guess like if it's been a while since I've had people over, I start to feel a little like, mm, like it's time to have people to my house. And it's weird. Like, I don't know where that comes from. Every once in a while, rarely, but every once in a while, something will happen where it's like a particularly difficult party. Like it was particularly hard or the cleanup was, you know, something about it was really intense. And I'll say to Scott, like, enough, no more of this. We can't do this. And then, I don't know, a few weeks go by and I'm like, so what are we doing for a Halloween party? And it's just like, so I don't, anyway, I feel like I got off track there. The original question was like, what was the impetus to writing this essay? I guess I had been thinking about this topic for a while and the pandemic caused us to stop having I want to say stop entirely, but we did not stop entirely. We were good. We we're lucky enough to, you know, live in a place with a giant screen porch and a pool and a patio and a fire pit. So we still kept having people over all throughout the pandemic. We just sat outside 10 feet away from each other. So that was really helpful. But I really did start to long for the kind of regular party of having people inside or whatever. And so I wrote this. I think a little bit after the lockdown part was over because I'd been thinking about it for a long time. And then in terms of why I wanted to share it, this one particular this week, no particular reason. I was just trolling back through older essays thinking like, I want to dip back into the archive. And this one just stuck out at me because I just thought it's a topic dear to my heart. It's so wonderful how you bring together so many different things, um, you know, your own experiences and and your relationship and then literature, which of course is, you know, such a big part. 
I was sorry that you um, only told me the essay that you were going to do a few days ago, so I not only didn't have time to reread Mrs. Dalloway, but I also did not have time to read Anna Karenina, which I never read before. So, <laughs> or War and so. Peace. <laughs> right? War and Peace, I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm shocked, Tanya, really shocked that you I'm didn't. just not doing my homework sufficiently. <laughs> I... I have to say, like, as I read over, because I, I told you just, I changed my mind, listeners. I was going to do a different essay, and then I changed my mind, which is why Tanya didn't have enough time to reread War and Peace. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have my well-worn copy of Mrs. Dalloway here from college when I read it. <laughs> nice. Excellent. So, yeah. So, of course, when I read this over, like, I read it over again just a few minutes before we got on this podcast recording, and I read the sentence about, like, ask an emo undergraduate about, and he'll say it's Septimus Warren Smith committing suicide. I was like, oh my God, I hope this isn't a spoiler for Tony. <laughs> but thank heavens you've read Mrs. Dalloway already. Because <laughs> that's a pretty big spoiler. I mean, that's mm -hmm. like, when I teach a novel and I teach it constantly, in fact, I'm, I'm literally teaching it in four days again. So mm. I never know how to handle like, are we just going to be like mature adult literary critics about this and like you know we're not reading this for plot or for entertainment we like are referring to it as like a work of art so we can go ahead and talk about things that happen further on in the novel but over the years I've stopped that stance I'm like I want the undergraduates to be reading this and enjoying it and if I'm spoiling it for them then that is affecting their learning even if like there's no artificial distinction between learning about a novel and actually appreciating it and loving it and enjoying it. Well, so yeah, sorry. I mean, we're planting some seeds right now that people are going to go and, you know. Yeah. So I'm curious because part of what brought this about seems like it was what happened to party giving during the pandemic, you know, that you couldn't have people over. What did you think about pandemic Zoom parties? Were you hosting parties on a virtual platform? I guess probably like a lot of other people, I found them sort of fun and um, interesting, different at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the lockdown, I hated them so much. I just, <laughs> you know what I mean? And there was like a pretty smooth development or trajectory through those um, phases. I remember when the lockdown, there was like one day, at least it felt like everybody I know who's an academic anyway was all kind of on the same page where the universities pretty much decided to move to Zoom all roughly on the same day. Yeah. And so it was like pretty, even though we knew it was coming and it was, there was a lot of anxiety for a few weeks leading up to it, it was pretty like dramatic, like boom, that's it. And my department is extremely collegial and my colleagues are wonderful and we all actually all really love each other and get along, which I know is really unusual for an English department, um, let alone an academic department. But um, we have a tradition of going out for happy hour drink after all of our department meetings. And so um, I know everyone thinks that's so weird. I'm like, yeah, we all really like each other. <laughs> but um, but I remember we, I know, right. <laughs> We did it on Zoom that first week week or two, right? We had a department meeting on Zoom, and then we all did like a cocktail, got, you know, made a, a drink or whatever, or a mocktail, and just sat on Zoom and talked to each other. And we did it again like a couple weeks later, and then that was it. Everyone was like, ugh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's obviously better than nothing, but I really grew to hate it. I really did. Mm. How about you? Did you like it, or did you feel it was like just kind of a pale version socializing? I, I didn't do a whole lot of it. And then I heard that there were all these people who were like playing games on Zoom. And I'm like, oh my gosh, wait, 
why haven't I been going to Zoom parties? I was having like FOMO even in the middle of the pandemic, right? But there were a couple of fun things, like like my favorite local '80s cover band. Shout out to Joysticks uh, <laughs> did a did a Zoom thing, and this was quite a ways into lockdown. And but they like played outside, and um, they were on Zoom, and then people had their cameras on, and I was in my living room dancing, and I could see other people from my community, but also people from far away could come and. It was, I just needed it so much right then. So yeah, I got a little, you know, it was, it was a lot just being on screen all the time, like looking at people and it just wasn't that fun. Actually, one of the worst things about those social experiences during Zoom is it would be really fun and you get to talk to people and it's this great experience. And then like it's over and you turn off the Mm. camera and then you're just all by yourself. I mean, I was because I live alone. And so... There was no after party. Yeah. That's a really, really interesting point. You need like a come down or something like the party is such an intense, I don't want brain chemicals and, you know, whatever on and actual chemicals um, going, going through your head and like to just shut it off, like shutting off a camera. That's yeah, that's really hard. The after party is super important. And like, again, I'm, sh- I'm giving another shout out in the interview part to my friend Trish, who's like, we spent a lot of time analyzing like, I think we're almost more interested in what made a good after party than what made a good party because it's such an interesting phenomenon, right? Like, so we were friends in North Carolina and then I moved to Vancouver and I was there for 13 years. So we lived, well, we still live far away from each other, but we were really far away from each other. And we would, we you know, whenever I'd have, I would have a party, she'd have a party. We'd at first kind of talk about it afterwards. Like we'd analyze it the next day, like how'd the party go? And we'd always include questions of like, who stayed later? Like who was at the after party and what did you learn at the after party? How did that, cause I don't know, there's something about it. That's like, there's this, the part in the essay where I say that like Virginia Woolf wisely ends the Mrs. Dalloway's party in the middle so that we never learn if there's an after party because it could just be another source of disappointment for her, right? But um, I refer to like the fact that nobody we don't we never learn if anybody stretches out on the carpet and dishes about Sally Seaton. That is a little very, very, very in reference to Middlemarch, actually, the other novel I talk about obsessively. Um, there's this wonderful moment where we learn that Will Ladislaw, who's like the young, the young hero of the novel, he loves going over to the Lydgate's house and stretching out on their carpet and talking to them. And I remember the first time I read that, I was just like, Victorian people were that intimate with each other? You know, I just like, it seemed so contrary to what, there's so much formality and such rigid social rules around socializing and visiting and visiting cards and like 15 minutes, you know, all this kind of very, it felt like life in the 19th century was so oppressive because you had to follow these extraordinarily strict rules and just this little tiny glimpse into like, well, of course they were into it with each other. They just, you know what I mean? Like, I just love that Ellie included that little detail of Will Ladislaw stretching out on the carpet. So to my mind, that's a really important part of an after party is that somebody lies down (laughs) on the carpet, (laughs) you know, just to, just to relax. Well, well, you know, you use that word intimate about it. And that's what strikes me about the after party is Mm -hmm. is there's an intimacy to it. And the people who, you know, are willing to stick around and don't care that the party was supposed to end two hours ago. And you are 
having a different kind of moment with them. I, w- I was thinking as you were talking at first about, like, you don't know why you keep doing these parties, but but you lay it out in there, you know? You like to get to go to a party, so you know you'll get an invitation if you're hosting. And <laughs> yeah. um, the thing that I think about parties, my creativity goes toward creating experiences. Mm-hmm. And that's really what a party is. You're creating an experience. But there's a different thing about creating an experience that's like a lot of people engaging together and people don't know each other and you're sort of facilitating this whole, uh, I think you said, you know, it's like being a good general, you know. And mm-hmm. But then there's this part that it's just like, okay, you're done sort of hosting and mm. now you're just hanging out. So I don't mm-hmm. know if that's what it feels like for you. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. It's like you also get to let your hair down. Often I stretch out on the carpet or whatever. So yeah. And then you get to talk about, you drop the mask or whatever. Not that you have a mask on during a party necessarily, but like you relax a little bit and talk about, you have a meta conversation about the party, like what worked and what didn't and et cetera. And I think like I gave a kind of short shrift a little bit in this essay, but like the pre-party is also equally important, right? Where for a long time, I have to say that this essay was a, you know, a Dr. Waffle essay. And the first earliest Dr. Waffle essays were all solicited topics from from friends. I think I've said this before. I kind of like drifted away from that, but this was an earlier one. And so uh, my friend Dory is the person who suggested this and she's a great party guest. (laughs) One of the things that she's so great at is she would always come right on time or early and we would drink champagne, like, but while we're waiting for everybody else to show up. So that became kind of an unofficial thing where it's like, I'll have one bottle of champagne and whoever is here on the earlier side gets to drink it. Yeah. Or so a punch full of whiskey sours. I was like, yes. oh my gosh, that is the perfect thing, I think. Right. Oh, it's okay. So also there's all this other stuff I didn't talk about in the essay, which is about like the actual like technical details of planning. So I remember once having a conversation with a with a fellow Victorianist who is also a big party thrower. And we agreed that you anchor your party around signature cocktail, right? Like you have a punch bowl of something and then people bring beer and wine or whatever. And so what often ends up happening is like everybody brings a bottle of wine or some beer, they all drink the cocktail and then you have like a butt ton of beer and wine left over, which means you can throw your next party. (laughs) You already have half the materials for it right there. There's no Um, better way to stock your wine bar than to throw a party, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, you usually end up with like cheap red wine, which is the stuff that you don't want to drink because it's the stuff that gets opened last, but whatever, it's fine. Then you have like a, you know, then you have a caroling party and make mulled wine or (laughs) whatever you do with cheap red wine. Yeah. So there's all kinds of like technical things too, about like making enough food in advance. I've got like this whole folder through full of like frozen canapé recipes, like stuff that you can freeze um, and then heat up again. And, you know, it's just like, so you're not doing work on the day itself, but you're kind of able to relax and enjoy yourself a bit. And that's the other thing is like, how do you, how do you plan a party that's an experience that other people are enjoying, but you also get to enjoy yourself a little anyway, maybe not as much as if you were a guest, you don't want to be unhappy and, and anxious for the whole night. You want to be able to actually let your hair down a little. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that I've been thinking I want to have is a party helper because Mm. I love hosting parties, but it's hard doing it by myself. Mm -hmm. And, and so, and I want to be able to just enjoy the party too. So I want to have somebody who, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking into that. That's, that's sort of (laughs) next level for me. Life goals. Yes. 
this is the traditional role of the person you're living with. Usually it's like, usually it's like one person is like, I want to throw the party. I mean, Scott, he's that, he's the party helper. I mean, that sounds really terrible because he does a lot of work. He does, in fact, in some cases, most of the work, depending on the type of party, if it's something that like the work involved is more stuff that he does or a particular kind of makes, like he makes great chili. Um, so often, you know, a lot of parties we have, it's like he really ends up doing the cooking or whatever. So yeah, but that it is absolutely true. Having two people makes it a lot, a lot easier. Yeah. I, I was thinking, you know, it's great. You and Scott seem very like a, like a good hosting partnership and mm-hmm. uh, and Matt and I are aligned on drawer closing on driving <laughs> on napping like all those are good but we are on kind of different pages I'm really enjoy hosting and it's it's not his favorite thing so mm. um I think a party helper would be a good thing to have in my life yeah I feel like when you have like a situation where either one person doesn't really feel like throwing parties as much or you yourself feel like you want to have a little something but you're not up for the big rager or whatever like I feel like a brunch is a really good like mm-hmm. ho- I feel like people need to host brunches more because it's for me it showcases all my favorite foods that I like mm-hmm. to make and that I'm good at like I'm a really good baker I'm not so much of a cook as a baker and so I get to make like sourdough bagels and coffee cake and you know all this kind of stuff so that's part of why I like it. And it's also like, you know, you have it like one o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday or whatever until five or six. And then, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, then I you have brunch. Is, I also think brunch is one of the easiest things to host, partially because I don't actually bake. Like I'll make muffins for days, but I don't do mm-hmm. the other things. But then you get bagels. Like here in Santa Barbara, you can get, you know, uh, fresh organic uh, strawberries every week of the year, you know? So yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> you have a big pile of strawberries and bagels and toppings and muffins and that's all you need and a frittata, you know? Yeah. Great. I'm getting hungry. This all sounds like yeah. I want to have a brunch right now, but unfortunately it's like Monday at three or whatever. It's just like not well, the right I, time. I was thinking about because meal wise, I love dinner parties too. I love hosting. Mm. Like one of my favorite ways to spend an evening is a dinner party. And mm-hmm. whether I'm attending or hosting, but I but I feel like people don't throw dinner parties as much as they used to or they did in my imagination or something, right? I was just having this conversation recently. It's I think it's like so we're Gen Xers. I have a lot of friends here who are millennials and that's like, and then I have a lot of friends who are like older Gen Xers or even younger boomers. And so like, there's a whole generational range. I feel like even just the difference between the Gen Xers and the millennials is pretty stark. Like they are not the dinner party throwing generation. We might be the last dinner party throwing generation. Um, It's just not a thing. And I really miss it. We were just visiting this past weekend, our friends, Wendy and Joel, who are, exactly the same age as us and they are like amazing they don't I don't think they do throw big parties or they used to anyway but mostly they are dinner party people and they had a dinner party while we were there and so they brought out their they have an album a photo album in which every single dinner party that they've thrown they take a photograph of everybody sitting around the table you know like an actual photograph that you print out like (laughs) I mean I guess back in the day it was film and now they just print out a digital photograph or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then on the left-hand side of the album page, they write the names of the guests and what they served. Oh. So they have this record of every dinner party, which I also was such a great idea because I'm an obsessive archivist. So I, I wish I had something like that 
to look back on. It was so fun to go back and look at all their parties and we were at a bunch of them and yeah, oh, but I don't know. So lovely. I have, I have an Excel spreadsheet where I do that like, <laughs> at times when I remember to, to do it, but also because I'm like, Oh, right. Who was that collection of people? And what did I serve last time? And I don't mm-hmm. want to do the same thing. And you know, so all of that. Mm. What is your favorite? I mean, I know this changes over time, but like right now, what would you say would be your favorite thing to, to serve at a dinner party? Oh, so since I got an instant pot, <laughs> Oh, no. Are we going to have the Instant Pot conversation? We might have to have the Instant Pot conversation now. But I have been enjoying things like I've been I've been doing a lot more meat based things, I feel mm. like, like pot roast. And I made this pork with sauerkraut that I had mm. like got the recipe from my dad. And I, had you know, so I, I also love a soup party where I'll make like mm. three different kinds of soup. And, oh. you know, I know, which is kind of fun. So I really do good. enjoy uh, meals where everything's eaten out of a bowl. Like I think that mm. that's a nice thing. Um, mm-hmm. But then the other thing I, I was just thinking about this because Passover's coming up this week. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking, yeah, actually satyrs are just very elaborate dinner parties where, yeah. you know, you have to like pray and t- talk about history and social justice for an hour before everyone can eat. But that's super great. I think I, I so I, I like doing that as well. That's- yeah, exactly. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't been to a satyr in a really long time. That's another topic of conversation. But to, so to answer the first question first, I also like bowl kind of things. I'm always bugging Scott to make chili. I, first of all, his chili is freaking amazing. It's like Kevin's chili on The Office. You know, I don't remember that scene where he spills it all. Anyway, (laughs) for Office fanatics out there, you'll know what I'm referring to. It takes him three days to make. He like, he has this gigantic mortar and pestle that I can't even lift. I can't even push it across the counter, I don't think. And he uses that to pound chilies for days. It's just insane. It's so, so, so good. So I'm always bugging him to do that, but he's bored with it. You know, once you kind of master something, you're like, eh, there's not, there's no mystery anymore. But I love things like that, like, yeah, like stews, pot, like things that are kind of like terrine based. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe there's something like kind of like you're primal about it being like some you're around a fire and there's like a pot or or cauldron or something. I don't know. There's something about it that feels very like, yeah, sociable and like. Probably because you don't need a knife to eat anything. So there's no weapons at the table. (laughs) I'm sure I'm sure that has something to do with it. I'm sure like I'm sure some medieval kings like decided to start making stews to serve to, you know, with political rivals or whatever that very reason. But yeah. Um, so I, I realize I have more questions about the essay. So I okay. but I also all I want to do now is talk about like food at parties, you know. I know, I right? Feel like, oh my gosh, <laughs> so much to say about that. Yeah. Um, but but tell me uh, in terms of the essay. Were there things that you didn't like as so much about it in this rereading? And also, like, is there something that's your favorite thing about it? It's not so much something I didn't like about the essay itself. I, I did notice this one was significantly shorter. I'm getting, like, Dr. Waffle is getting really long-winded, I have to say. <laughs> like, I don't, this was supposed to be 52 mini essays, and I'm up to 49, so it's almost done. But um, they were supposed to be, like, this length, like, pretty, you know, relatively short. And now they're they're, like... 3,000, 4,000 words. These are not many anymore. But anyway, so this one, I ne- immediately noticed it was shorter. And I was like, well, I probably would have developed this and this and this. And then I was like, actually, no. I mean, it's probably fine that, you know, it's a little on the shorter side. It was hard to read the quotations. I didn't want to say, quote, you know, and the kind of ruin the flow and unquote. But so I tried to do a slightly different voice. That was a little hard. But as the essay itself, I kind of, no, I thought, 
I thought it worked. I thought it was good that I didn't go on and on. If I was writing it now, I probably would have overwritten it and made it way too long. That's a real problem. But I, I think that you don't have to say everything because now we have a podcast where you can, <laughs> you know, say more that you wanted to talk about. Exactly. Yeah. Like so many like little hyperlinks or like, you know, this is like click on this topic and then we're off. And I, th- I really liked the Anna Pavlovna versus Clarissa Dalloway thing. Who knows for whom else that will resonate, but I just liked the idea of like picking a couple of exemplars of weary hostesses. And it was really helpful that Clarissa was there because she's kind of perfect because she's both a consummate hostess and obviously really good at it, but also displays a fairly large degree of neuroticism (laughs) about her party. So, and I love the part about how she disappears because I always, so this is another kind of bigger, deeper thing, but I think a lot of people that I've talked to who consider themselves to be pretty much straight up extroverts, like not even a question before the pandemic are now like, "Mm, I kind of like being alone a lot more, or I I have like a lower tolerance for intense socializing than I used to. I've talked to so many people who've said that, but I feel like even before the pandemic, I'm an extrovert and that I crave and need lots of socializing and it energizes me and I feel more energetic afterwards and all that classic stuff. But I also feel like often during a party, I'm like, Ooh, I just need five minutes. And so I'll like, you know, it'll just become suddenly too intense and I'll like go to the bathroom or something. <laughs> I'll just like pretend to be in the bathroom for five minutes. Actually, there's a footnote to that essay where I talk about that. I didn't read the footnotes, but um, I loved the image of Clarissa just disappearing and everyone's like, where's Clarissa Dallow? You know, and she's like in the other room freaking out quietly and then <laughs> pulls herself together. I just thought that was great because it seemed like really true to me about like how you get through a long party like that is you have to take these little breaks if you're the hostess. I realize that, yeah, I, I love that because there's a part where I like being, you know, sparkly and storytelly and, you know, that that's a really fun role to play at a party. But mm-hmm. I, I don't want to do that for the whole party. Like, I think it's really fun to be able to step back and watch the party too. Yes. yes. I, I know a lot of people who are like, I like to be the DJ or I like to be the bartender or I like to have a role where mm-hmm. I can like... I officially have to step back and don't have to be engaging with people all the time. Yes, exactly. And that's another thing that's, I think, great about doing a team, you know, party mm-hmm. giving as a team is that, like, you can have that rhythm of, like, some, like sometimes Scott disappears for a while. And I'm like, oh, he's just having his little break or whatever. But, yeah, it's like you can step into and out of roles. But even throwing a party by yourself, you can do that, too. And that's, like, what the War and Peace passage was getting at is, like, she sets – these little groups in motion and then she withdraws and goes to the next group and it's like she's managing them but she's not doing their work she's not doing the party work for them right. she's just making sure everything's kind of going okay it's really fascinating because it's like a party is such a complex system and it's so delicate in some ways and it's so unpredictable and there's like you can only do so much like it's like teaching a class you're like this is the exact same syllabus. I'm the same professor. Sometimes I've taught classes on the same day and I'm like, this class is amazing and they're all doing great and they love each other. And this other class is like totally quiet and doesn't seem to be into it. It's just, you can't. I know. You never know how it's going to go. Yeah. Yeah. And then when it goes really well, when afterwards, like at the after party, everyone's like, that was amazing. Then you get to be like, well, that, you know, I don't know how we did that, but that was just one of those lucky things where 
everything gelled and everyone felt like it was kind of magical. I feel like the first big party we gave after the pandemic was Halloween 2021. So it was like, I guess everybody got vaccinated like Mar- like March, April, May of that year. Mm-hmm. So it was like, you know, people were feeling comfortable enough and it was, we had a lot of it outside. So we had a fire pit, the weather was perfect. So people who didn't want to come inside could stay outside or whatever. And I think that one felt really magical. And I, a lot of people who were there said it, that they thought so too. So it wasn't just me, but it was just like, wow, we really appreciated that this was something we'd missed. And like, it was really great. Yeah. I, I think that it's all of those elements coming together. So my favorite part of the essay is when your friend shows up, <laughs> you know, before the party, like, you know, maybe you're worried that no one's going to come. I I always worry that. So here I am. And I'm like, what a lovely gift that was. Yeah. His name really is Pete. And then Peter Walsh is really the name of the character in Clarissa Dalloway. So I was like, oh. people aren't going to believe me that his name is Pete, but it, it really mm-hmm. is. So, it, But yeah. but I, I just think that that's lovely because that, that anxiety of, oh my God, no one's coming. But then I loved your description of this. It's not just no one's coming. It's I have no friends, you know, that, that there's that meaning that it has. It's like, oh, if no one comes, then I have no friends. But if people come and it's wonderful, then yeah, that's why that there's the anxiety. But it's also that's why there's a compulsion to do it. Because it's like, oh, this, this can be really affirming and fun. But gosh, you're you're risking something that way. Yeah, absolutely. That feeling of risk is like, that's exactly it. It's like, it's easier just not to do it because it's scary if it doesn't go well it feel it can feel really bad having a party that nobody comes to i mean it hasn't happened to me that often but it has definitely happened where like way fewer people came or the other thing i hate so much is um you send out a whole bunch of invitations and then about an hour before the party's supposed to start the texts start coming and mm-hmm. you know a text an hour before a party is never good it's always like oh i'm sick or oh i can't make you know whatever and i'm just like just don't just don't <laughs> I should just turn off I should just turn off my phone before a party and not check so demoralizing. but yeah but then often uh, you can't do that cuz sometimes people are like what should I bring or like do you need more ice or whatever so you can't just not look at the texts mm-hmm. I'm better at this now I I do want to say I'm less neurotic than I used to be I hope it used to be more painful like when people would not come to a party it it hurt me yeah which is ridiculous because of course people don't come to your party for all kinds of reasons and very rarely is it like oh all of a sudden i hate you <laughs> you know like i i suppose that's a theoretical possible reason why one would not come to a party but pretty rare like i suddenly decided you're not my friend anymore um, so it's like it's all ridiculous but it's still the after party, I should have said in the essay, there's another rule. One of the rules is no cleaning up because I just like, I want the f- party feeling to continue. And so mm-hmm. I want people to just still be like chillaxing and hanging around or whatever. And I'll, I'll stop them like, no, 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 I really don't want you to help me clean up. I'll do it tomorrow. Partly also, I don't want to do it at night. It's tiring. I want to go to bed and do it in the morning. But the other rule is, and this is again, my friend Trish started this rule, rule and I think it's a really brilliant one. You're not allowed to rehearse who didn't come. You cannot, like the after party can't be, oh, where was so-and-so? And And, oh, so-and-so said they were coming, but they didn't show up. You can't do that because it's like, you're just going to make yourself feel bad. And also like, again, what does it matter? You should concentrate on the stuff that was good rather than the stuff that was missing. That's a brilliant rule. I love Mm -hmm. that. That's great. Yeah. And it's, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's tempting to do it. So you have to resist. 
Yeah, no, I, I do think that there's something of a, like putting yourself out there, it is a risk. And what the other time when everyone tells you they're not going to be able to make it is immediately after you send out the invitation. Because right. the people who know that they can't make it know that right away. Right. Um, but people don't necessarily know that they can make it or haven't committed to it until longer. So it's sort of you send it out there and then you get a whole bunch of people telling you they're not coming. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, exactly. I, I can't figure out if this is a geographic difference or a difference over time. I feel like people used to be willing to commit to things back in the olden days. <laughs> and yes. I just, I feel like, and I, and then I was like, but wait, I've lived in Santa Barbara for the last 23 years where everybody is like, oh, I'm not sure if I can do that. I'm going to need to check in with myself that day. Like everyone has to check in with themselves and see how they're doing <laughs> oh and if, if they're up to it. And I was like, is that a Santa Barbara thing? Or is that the last 20 years? That's just what everybody does. So maybe you can tell me. It is both, I think. So speaking as somebody who lived on the West Coast, not California, but Vancouver is the West Coast. And like, mm -hmm. ev as everyone will point out, it's got the same Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, LA. It's got the whole same, the same kind of issues. It's beautiful. The weather's amazing. Somebody explained it to me shortly after moving there because this behavior was driving me bananas. Um, and it wasn't just with parties. It was with like, do you want to come, you want to go out to dinner on such and such a night with like oh, yeah. one other person? They're like, well, let me get back to you. Like, let me see how I feel. I'm like, no, <laughs> just tell me, <laughs> tell me now. Um, and so finally somebody explained to me, they're like, well, it's, it's a West coast thing. And it's like, the, their theory was the weather's so beautiful that everyone just wants to wait and see like, well, maybe I want to go skiing that day, or maybe I want to go for a, you know what I mean? So it's like, that's part of it. Also, definitely things have changed. Like the thing with like millennials don't throw dinner parties anymore. The rules are all different. Etiquette rules are so different. Like I've just, I've had to give up caring about this because it used to actually really bother me and even hurt me. The whole like, kind of let me see if something better comes along feeling like, mm. like that. I find that really rude, but other people don't. It's like kind of more acceptable now. And so I think like this could be another whole podcast slash essay, but just like etiquette rules in general. I mean, obviously the point of them in a way is they're generational. It's like, of course, etiquette changes and we don't leave carte visite and, you know, like whatever. we don't do half that stuff anymore. We don't have finger bowls, whatever. Um, and so like we seem as casual and rude to probably to boomers and silent generation types as, as millennials or Gen Zers might seem to our generation or whatever. But, but yeah, it's, it's a real point of friction in my own head. Because <laughs> I, I don't say anything to anybody about it. But like sometimes I'm like, really? You're just going to like tell me later if you're caught? I just don't. Yeah. I think a lot of what makes up the culture of a place is what draws people there. And what draws mm. a lot of people to, and I always thought about it as Santa Barbara, but I think it might be the West Coast, is there's a lot of natural beauty. There's a lot of personal growth experiences going on. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that, but they're very individualistic kinds of yes. things. And yes. so I think a lot of people are drawn because, and you know, these things are good. Personal growth is good. Like yeah. communing with nature is good. And it's not about making commitments to other people. And so it can be hard. I mean, this isn't just true of social events, because I've also done, you know, sort of, you know, political organizing and other things in the community. And yeah, like, people don't RSVP, people who do RSVP bail at the last minute, people who haven't RSVP show up. So, <laughs> you know, you have to take all of these things into account. 
But I think the thing for me that is hard about that is that it can feel like, oh, it's it's not a commitment to to other people and to the relationship and to the community. Yeah, I've had to work on not taking that so personally as well. One of the things I like best about a dinner party is that people are making a commitment to spend the whole evening together. They're not going to stop by, you know, right, and then right. go on. And they're not going to, I mean, sometimes people can't come at the last minute for, for some reason or another. But for the most part, they're really committing to spend time together. And I love that. I completely agree with that. It's like there's something... This part is still holding on, which is maybe why dinner parties aren't happening anymore. But because everyone knows that a dinner party is a big deal in the sense of you're making food and you need to show up on time relatively, like you can't come an hour and a half later, you know what I mean? It's still understood that the dinner party is kind of sacred. Um, And so if you throw a dinner party and people commit to coming to it, you know, you're going to have that kind of experience, which again, I think maybe is why dinner parties aren't happening so much is because people are like, that's like too much of a commitment or whatever. But I love that. I think you're so right about the community thing. It's like, there's a way of thinking about a party as a guest or an invitee, right? As like, what am I going to get out of this? Is it going to be fun for me? Maybe I'll go, maybe I won't. And that's all fine. I'm not at all saying you shouldn't think of a party that way. But there's another way of thinking about a party, which is like, this is a chance for my community or my friends or whatever to gather. And I have a certain kind of responsibility to that and whatever. I don't want to name names here for obvious reasons, but they'll recognize themselves when I tell this story. We have karaoke gatherings a lot. We have a really nice karaoke machine and we really like karaoke. So a lot of our parties are are karaoke. When we first moved here, we had smaller ones, which just identified just a few hardy souls who really like doing karaoke and they're kind of the core. But then gradually more and more people kind of were like, oh, I'll give that a try. And it kind of got, they got bigger. And so there was a recent one or a couple of karaoke parties ago where somebody who'd never done it before and had always been like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it, did one song. And of course it was amazing and fantastic. It's like he'd been practicing it or whatever. <laughs> it's like totally the hit of the party. But then later another couple were like, I heard about this later talking about that incident and this other man and it was a straight couple said I will never do that and then the wife of the person who had done the singing said this is not about you it's about community she told me that story later about that she'd said that and I was like that is hilarious and funny and it was like a charming anecdote but also really kind of true like there was a a kernel of truth to that joke it's not about not humiliating yourself it's not about like your pride or whatever. It's about you get up and are goofy and sing off key and make a fool out of yourself, but not really because no one cares. But you're in and it because, with other people. Yeah. And actually, I mean, again, this is another essay, but karaoke in like the whole concept of karaoke, <laughs> it's like so much to say. I have a whole text thread of friends. We all live in different places and we're all in the same field and we go to conferences together and this text thread started just because we were talking about karaoke and that's what it's the text thread is named that. But obviously we talk about lots of other stuff now, but it's like karaoke brought us together and yeah. So <laughs> you you are a karaoke person, right? I feel like we've talked about this. I, I love karaoke. I'm I'm yeah. bad at it because well, I can't matter. sing on key, but I well, I'm bad at it if you think that it's about singing on key. If you think it's about being enthusiastic, I am <laughs> so good at it. It is. This all started because a number of years ago, Scott bought me a karaoke machine as a birthday present and he arranged a karaoke party. So like 
it was like a little surprise party. So I like show up and there's like a karaoke machine and a bunch of friends. And I was like, this is amazing and perfect. <laughs> so we had this little karaoke gathering and one of our friends, and she was the designated driver that night, which I feel is important to tell this part of the story because she was stone cold sober. And she did a duet with her partner of You Don't Bring Me Flowers. And it was howlingly bad. Like it was like, there's off key and then there's like, actual tone deafness or whatever it's called, like literally cannot hear that one note is higher than the other. And so she was, and she's basically just kind of howling her part of this duet. And it was, it was so charming and so funny. I remember this evening and that, that song as the hardest I've ever laughed in my entire life. It was one of those things where like, we're gasping for air. I thought I was going to throw up. I was laughing so hard. And it was all, and we weren't laughing at her. She knew she was bad. Like she knows she can't sing, but she was so into it and she just gave it her all. And they sounded so terrible and it was so adorable and funny and lovely. Anyway. So yeah, it's not at all. I I wish people who felt self-conscious about their karaoke singing got that more. In fact, honestly, like if you go to a karaoke bar, I would never say this about any of my friends because my friends are all amazing and perfect and I and I love their voices. But when you go to a karaoke bar and you hear somebody who's just like actually a singer and you're like, whatever, fine. <laughs> you sound great. I don't care. <laughs> I'd rather hear like somebody who's a little quirky and goofy or whatever. Anyway, yes, we could say so much more about karaoke and party. I think we need to have a whole... Yes. I, one of us, it doesn't matter which one, one of us needs to write a karaoke essay and then we have a conversation That'd about be karaoke because, yeah, it's it's a rich topic of its, yeah. own, <laughs> of its own. So I realize we could obviously just go on talking yeah. for the rest of our lives, but I'm going to yes. ask you one more question about this essay. Is I want to know, what do good Buddhists look like when they're throwing <laughs> a party? <laughs> what a great question. <laughs> I don't know. I mean. What do you imagine? I guess my thought would be like, you have to do it without attachment, right? You have to do it. A good Buddhist would be not obsessing neurotically about whether or not it was going well, and certainly not about anything having to do with ego, right? Like, that's the thing. For me, throwing a party is pretty much about all the parts of my personality that are <laughs> they're not particularly Buddhist. <laughs> I want to look good. I want people to like me. I want people to think that I'm a good hostess. I want people to like my food and to admire me. Like there's all kinds of crap going on in the party throwing mindset, right? That's definitely about attachment and ego and stuff. So I don't know. You tell me, you're, would a good Buddhist even throw a party or would it? I don't know. Like, what would it look like? Would you just have to throw a meditation party? (laughs) (laughs) I guess. I don't know. I do understand the non-attachment to outcome, you know, that that makes a lot of sense. I don't know exactly. I mean, I think, you know, it is a gift that you give to people, though. And Mm -hmm. it does, you know, one of the things I always think about with Buddhism is that every experience is giving us an opportunity to make our choices and and to and to practice in whatever way. So right. throwing a party means we're just giving ourselves more opportunities to get to know those things that come up for ourselves and to try to work with them. And I think that's the best you can do. Absolutely. Whatever happens is the path. I think like yes, that's kind of what I was trying to get at when I said it gives me an opportunity to check in and discover I still suck. And that like the second part was the joke. But the checking in part is real. Like, yeah, I mean, there is a way. And when I said there are moments, like I I can for moments get to that place where I I really am just giving it freely and I don't, and it's not about me or my ego and it doesn't matter what happens. 
those are moments that I feel like, yeah, this is what it's really about. Like, but a lot of it, I would say 75% of my party going energy, I would say is probably karmically bad. <laughs> just, just in the sense of like either worrying or being egotistical, you know what I mean? And 25% is like freely just givingness in a way that's like without strings. So I got to just got to work on, you know, increasing the percentage of that over time. But yeah, you have to keep giving parties in order to be able to do that. It is practice for sure. Excellent. Parties as practice. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Dee, for sharing your marvelous essay and so many of your party giving tips. I'm excited <laughs> to get to come to one of your parties soon. I should include a recipe in the liner notes. So <laughs> no question. Thanks, Tanya. Thanks, Dee. Listeners, if you liked what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and share so more folks can find us. You can follow us on social media at Dr. Waffle Pod, that's Dr. Waffle Pod, or email us at drwafflepod at gmail.com. Check out the show notes for websites and other info. Thanks for listening. <laughs>